thank you for paying our ransom, for loving us that much. And we ask that you would use what you say in Scripture to help us give that love away to others in the way that you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A while back I read an article in the newspaper that said that some restaurants have a practice of seating good-looking people or wealthy-looking people up front near windows because when other people see it, they're attracted to that restaurant and come in. And I found that article kind of discouraging because it explains why I'm always sitting in the back of a restaurant. (laughs) Some of you may want to think, where were you sitting the last time you ate out, right? Kind of a sobering thought. We are continuing our sermon series on the book of James, which is a very practical book about how to put our faith into action so that it makes a difference in our lives. And in chapter 1, James talks about how we should be doers of our faith, not just hearers of it. And then in chapter 2, James goes on to give an example of how we can put our faith into practice so that it makes a difference. And he says, don't show favoritism. But treat all people with equal dignity, sort of unlike some restaurants do, apparently. And he gives an example, and he says, if a rich person comes into your church, don't treat him any better than you would a poor person just because he's rich. But that's just one example that James gives of of how we show favoritism, and he could have given a lot of examples. The truth is there are all kinds of ways that we show favoritism to one group of people over another. And I want to do something a little different just for a second here. It's summer. We're a little more informal. I'd like to ask you just to name me one or two or three ways that in our culture we tend to show favoritism. Just make it slightly interactive just for an un-Presbyterian second here. Some of you have always wanted to talk back while I'm preaching. Now's your chance. Give me some examples. Just a couple examples of ways that we show favoritism in our culture. Youth. Age is that we often prefer youth or sometimes adults don't want to be around teenagers, stuff like that. Yeah, that's one way. What are some other ways? Excuse me? What? Sports teams. That's come up in every service. Athletes get all kinds of attention from the media, from us. And even they're great people and athletes are wonderful. But boy, we really, they, they, there's a lot of favoritism there. Race. Racism is still alive and well in our culture, unfortunately. Huh? Skinny people, yeah. <laughs> Unfair, isn't it? Looks is a huge one. I, I used to lead a Bible study when I was a college pastor. I led a Bible study of all frat guys, and they were kind of, you know, good looking athletes, big men on campus. And we were studying this passage, and I asked them, How would you feel if a poor person joined our Bible study? And they said, Oh, we're above you know, judging people based on wealth, we'd be fine with that. And they're kind of smug about it. So I asked, how would you feel if an overweight person joined the Bible study? And they didn't like that at all. But that might diminish the status of the Bible study, you know, throw off their mojo with the women if they were studying scripture with an overweight person. Looks is a huge one. A couple others. Education. I, uh, I spent a lot of time in universities, as you know, and I was amazed at how some folks in universities look down on people who don't have college degrees or vice versa. Uh, When I was in college one summer, I had a summer job with people who didn't particularly, uh, uh, the kind of anti-education people, and they kind of would just ruthlessly make fun of me for being in college. And one of them once said to me, yeah, yeah, you 
you're in college and you know about history and math and all that stuff, but can you do anything useful like repair a lawnmower or build a fence? And the answer is no, I can't do anything useful. But that's beside the point. They were being mean. The truth is there are all kinds of ways that we show favoritism to one group of people or another. We love to create an in-group and an out-group. Because if we feel like we're in and someone else is out, that makes us feel better about ourselves. And we all do it in one way or another. This week, my family and I drove back from California with three kids all in one day. Fun for the whole family. And as I was trying to get us home before our kids completely melted down, I experienced one of my prejudices. People who drive slowly in the left lane. They should have, yes, can I have an amen? amen. Thank you. Yes. They should have their driver's license taken away. Maybe a little time in prison wouldn't hurt either, right? I favor people who drive fast. James says, don't be doing that. Favoritism is destructive. It hurts you and it hurts others. Whenever God says don't do something, it's not because he's an ogre out to keep us from having fun. He says don't do something because it's destructive. And favoritism can be destructive in a couple of ways. Let me just give you a couple of ways. Favoritism wrecks our life. It puts us in bondage. In this example, James says, why are you favoring the rich? They're the ones that are pressing you. In James' day, as sometimes still in our day, sometimes wealthy people exploit other people for their own gain, often because they have the power to do that. Now, clearly not every wealthy person does that, not at all, but some do. And James says, your favoritism is simply helping the people who are oppressing you. Stop doing it. But that doesn't just apply to favoring the rich. Any kind of favoritism will put us in bondage. In this passage toward the end, James says, if you judge without mercy, you will end up being judged. And part of what he means by that is the ways that we treat other people will be the ways that we eventually treat ourselves. So if we treat other people with favoritism, we will come to believe that the only way we're going to be accepted or loved is if we're rich or good-looking or outgoing or whatever the reasons are that we show favoritism. We'll internalize that law. Pretty soon we won't be able to accept ourselves unless we're some of those things. So we'll become workaholics to try to prove our worth. Or we'll feel pressure to keep up with the Joneses, bigger house, better car. Or when crow's feet start to show or hair starts to fall out, we'll worry. Because the standards we apply to others, we will eventually apply to ourselves. And that's bondage. Another way favoritism just ruins our lives is it wrecks community. You know, one of the reasons that Christianity grew faster than any religion in history was for the first time in history, Christianity put people together of different races, different economic classes that had never happened before, and they treated each other as equals. And that kind of community was so attractive, people were dying, literally dying, to be part of it. But if we show favoritism, especially here in church, we wreck that kind of great community. And we just end up reproducing the world's rotten value system in here. When Gandhi was a college student, he at one point seriously considered becoming a Christian. Because he saw that the early Christians got rid of favoritism and he thought that Jesus could get rid of the Hindu caste system that was wrecking India. So he went to church one day. 
But when the usher saw the color of his skin, refused to seat him and said, why don't you go find a church with people of your kind and worship with them? So Gandhi thought, well, if Christianity has a caste system too, then why bother? I might as well just stay Hindu. Think how different history might have been if what Gandhi found in that church instead was a community where it didn't matter your race or how you looked or how much money you made, where you didn't have to pose and posture and pretend to be accepted like you have to do out in the world. Who wouldn't want to be part of that kind of community? But if we show favoritism, we undo that, and it wrecks our lives. Third way favoritism wrecks our lives is it dehumanizes others and ourselves. You know, as a shy person, I have often been overlooked in favor of people who are more outgoing. And it doesn't feel good to be on the receiving end of that. Or as a pastor, sometimes people will often judge me based on stereotypes of what they think a pastor is. And those stereotypes can kill any conversation almost instantly. You know, which, which can come in handy sometimes, like on an airplane when I want to read my book. You know, the person next to me asks what I do for a living. I tell them, and I have the rest of the flight to read my book in peace. <laughs> Might want to try that sometime. I'm a pastor. Really? It still feels kind of dehumanizing. It feels like as if I've been treated as a category, not as a human being. But you know what? It's also dehumanizing if we're the ones who are favoring other people. Because then pretty soon we start to feel anxious to try to impress those people that we're favoring because we think they can do something for us. I heard a story a while back, which I'm sure isn't true, but it makes a good point, about a man who called a church and asked if he could speak to the head hog at the trough. Kind of a weird phrase, but must have been Texas. I don't know. The receptionist didn't like that. She said, if you're referring to our pastor, you're going to have to treat him with more respect. The man said, fine, that's okay, but I've got $10,000 I'd like to donate to the church. Receptionist said, just a minute, I think the big pig just walked in. From now on, you can feel free to refer to me as the Reverend Big Pig. I kind of like that. When we play favorites, we start to contort what we think, what we say, what we do, how we act to try to impress the people we're favoring. And that dehumanizes us and it wrecks our lives. As a college pastor, I would sometimes gravitate toward the athletes or the outgoing students because I knew if they came to my college group, other students would follow Kind of gross for a pastor, huh? But you know what that did to me inside? It made me anxious and worried because I was always trying to impress those students, trying to do what I thought they wanted me to do to to earn their favor because I thought they could do something for me. Showing favoritism didn't make me free. It made me miserable. Favoritism wrecks our lives. But perhaps the worst thing about it is it is an absolute denial of the heart of the gospel. James starts this passage with a pointed and almost ironic comment. He refers to Jesus as our glorious Lord Jesus. And he's making a point. He's saying Jesus was God himself, but he was born poor and he died a criminal's death. He was glorious, but he took the unfathomable stoop down to save us. And the cross is the most anti-favoritism thing there is. Because at the cross, those who didn't deserve to be given special treatment based on their behavior, namely us, We were given special treatment anyway. Our God was willing to die for us to reconcile us to him. And the one who should have been honored was dishonored. And the ones who didn't deserve any honor 
we're honored in his place. And when we play favorites, we absolutely deny that very heart, that very core of the beautiful message of the gospel. So how do we get out of that? How do we break free from the bondage that favoritism brings? Two things. First, remember that we're not all that, and then connect with God's unconditional love. I don't care how rich you are, how good looking you are, how outgoing you are, there's got to be something wrong with you somewhere. And if you don't believe me, just ask someone in your family. They'll tell you. (laughs) There is something in all of us for which we could easily be passed over in favor of someone else. Certainly morally, we've all sinned. We've dehumanized others by lusting after them in our minds. We've ruined reputations with our gossip. We've neglected to care for people we could have helped. And yet in all of that, in all of that, God still loves us. He is still crazy about us. He still wants to be with us. He still likes us, even. Remember that we aren't all that, and then connect with God's unconditional love that accepts you just as you are and not as you should be. Connect with that love through worship, through scripture, through prayer, through reminding yourself daily, God loves me unconditionally. St. Augustine said, Proud man would have died had not a lowly God come down. The God who did not have to, the God to whom all favor was due, stooped to rescue you and to rescue me. That's how much he loves you. Connect with that unconditional love, it becomes harder to show favoritism. And then a second way out of favoritism is to practice reaching out to people you might not otherwise reach out to. You don't have to do it all the time. You don't have to reach out to everyone. No one can do that. That's exhausting. But from time to time, If we occasionally reach out to those we don't naturally reach out to, it breaks us free from the bondage of favoritism. And it gives us joy. You know, I don't do this a lot, but sometimes I'll I'll take a homeless person into a restaurant, sit down, eat with them, buy them dinner, have a conversation. Interestingly, we've never been seated at the front of the restaurant. And some of the most powerful spiritual experiences in my life have come from those times when I've had a a meal with a homeless person. And I've told you some of those stories in the past. It's it's connected me with God in ways that I haven't been connected before. It's given me an experience of community. It's shown me all kinds of things. It gave me joy. You know, a a lot of times the reason we don't reach out to people, I think isn't because we're evil or mean, it's just we're afraid of them or we don't know how to talk to them. But if we practice reaching out from time to time, often we will experience God in a deeper level and community at a deeper level. You know, a simple thing that you could do today before leaving this service is simply say hello to someone you don't know. Before I came, I understand there used to be a three-minute rule here that for the first three minutes after the service, instead of favoring the people you know, go talk to someone you don't know. I'm shy, so I'm going to cut that down to two minutes, give you a break, but just, you know, go say hi to someone you don't know. It might be fun. After college, I worked as an intern in a church And one of the other interns was a guy that I did not like, and he did not like me. He viewed me as a cold, arrogant, aloof academic, and I viewed him as a legalistic, shallow fraternity brat. Now, the truth is, I was intimidated by him. He was an alpha male kind of guy, and that wasn't me. I I wasn't even beta male. I was more like gamma male or delta male or somewhere down there. And he was scared of me. I mean, he thought I'd judge him as being a legalistic, shallow fraternity brat. Don't know where I got that idea. 
So we didn't talk. We were on the same staff of six interns in a church, and we didn't talk. Showing Jesus to the world, right? So our boss noticed this, and so he said, you know what? There's no one here in the office on Mondays, so I want you two to man the office on Monday morning. But you have to do it together. Well, for the first two or three Mondays, we didn't say much to each other, just some small talk, and that was it. But finally, one day, he said to me, you were an English major, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, so was I. So we started talking about books, and we discovered that we liked a lot of the same authors, and that kind of got the conversation going. And then as the weeks went on, and as that year went on, our conversation got deeper and deeper. And we started to share our struggles, and our victories, our sins, our insecurities, our hopes, the good things, the bad things. And we have continued to do that for 22 years, uninterrupted. He lives in Seattle. I see him all the time. He stood beside me through a divorce, through career changes, all kinds of things. We've helped each other become better husbands to our wives, better pastors, better fathers, better men. For two decades, he has been one of my very best friends. At the end of that year, when we were done being interns, he gave me a book of one of his favorite writers, and he wrote inside it to Scott, who taught me never judge a book by its cover. (laughs) Good present for an English major, don't you think? I was passing over him in favor of people I thought were more worthy of my time, and he was doing the same. And because of it, we almost missed a really cool, lifelong friendship. But with a little help from our boss and a lot of the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin and helping us to do better, we were able to break free of the bondage of favoritism and know the joy and the life that comes from treating each other as brothers in Christ. And we discovered the liberating truth that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that's what James is talking about here. He is talking about this radical kind of freedom, a freedom from the world's rotten value system, A freedom from having to posture and pose and pretend to be accepted like you have to do out in the world. A freedom to discover friendships that reach beyond racial or social or economic divides as well as looks and personality and all the ways we are judging each other. James is saying this community, this community of who called Jesus their Savior and Lord, this community can be refreshingly, life-givingly different if we'll just follow what Jesus says to do. And we can't do it on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit first to connect us to God's love for us and then to help us see others the way God sees them. But when we do experience that, when we do follow this, we often have life at a deeper level and Jesus becomes more real. So who do you pass over in favor of others? And how is that keeping you from having the kind of cool life that you could have otherwise? This week... Will you connect with God's unconditional, irrational, passionate, crazy love for you? And then will you reach out to just one person, just one that you might not otherwise reach out to, and just see where it takes you? The author, Rebecca Pippert, tells a story about a church in Portland back in the 70s. And it was a very formal church. The men all wore suits. The women wore hats and gloves. And one day a college student came in, and he was dressed in grungy jeans and a dirty T-shirt and Worse yet, he came late, so he couldn't find a seat, so instead he just walked all the way up to the front of the sanctuary and sat down on the floor, right in front. Well, the pastor didn't know what to do, as pastors often don't, anyway, and everyone was kind of tense, and some people were angry, and some people felt like the worship service had been ruined. 
Well, finally, an older man in the congregation, one of the most conservative men in that church, got up, marched down to the front of the sanctuary, and everyone thought this man was about to give this student what for, for not dressing up for church or coming late. But instead, this older gentleman, with enormous difficulty, slowly sat down on the floor right next to the college student and just spent the rest of the service sitting right next to him, right there on the floor. Now, however you feel about dressing up for church and being on time or whatever, surely the more important thing is that we love each other the way Jesus has loved us. And that's what that man did. And I've got to believe it was kind of fun. I mean, don't you think that would be kind of fun to be that man? I mean, bare minimum, sitting on the floor would keep you awake during the sermon, right? <laughs> Let me ask you this question. Who in that story is free and who isn't? And who's having fun and who's not? And honestly, who are you in that story? And who do you want to be? And what kind of church do you want to be part of? Proud man would have died had not a lowly God come down. And when we stand on level ground with our brothers and sisters in Christ at the foot of the cross, we find freedom, life, and joy. And our faith goes from being just doctrines we hold in our head to a life-giving, difference-making, joy-bringing experience of the God who took the unfathomable stoop just to get to you and just to get to me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the wideness of your mercy and for your unconditional love that loves us just as we are, not as we should be. And Lord, we, I pray that you help us to connect with that love in a way that changes us, and then help us to give it away the way you have given it away. And we'll be grateful people. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.